the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. My name's Jackie Patton. I am a 29-year-old white woman. I live in San Francisco. I am an eviction defense attorney. I am from the Midwest originally. I'm from Kansas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and also I use they, their, them pronouns. I identify both as female, but also as non-binary. I kind of like flow between those categories and some days I'm a little bit more in the non-binary feelings and then other times I'm, I think gender is a spectrum, so it makes sense to me that I can flow between them. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about what radicalized me and it hasn't just been one event, but a series of events throughout my life, mostly through exposure, education, not just in school, but you know, learning from other people has been a huge exposure for me to become more radicalized. And I think about that, I don't know if you've seen that meme that's like, people tell me I'm gonna get more conservative as I get older, but I just keep getting queerer and more radical because I think that that's how I feel as I've learned more about other folks and they're, you know, like learning about the history of the United States, learning about the history of the world and colonization and racist housing policies and segregation and redlining and just knowing how all these different policies come to affect where we are right now and like mass inequality that people are experiencing is just like every time I learn more I'm just like pushed further to the left. I grew up working class lower middle class background in the in Kansas I'm from Wichita Kansas originally and my dad he did pest control and he worked at a pest control company and you know my parents there were three of us that they were supporting honest a modest salary and my dad actually he started organizing with the other employees at his work to try to get health insurance which is ridiculous anyway that there's just not health insurance for people in the United States and he ended up getting fired for that because he sent as he described a hot email once the bosses decided not to provide health insurance to the employees and so when that happened this was all because my mom was pregnant with my little brother at the time and you know we didn't have health insurance and they knew that they you know couldn't afford to have a child go to the hospital to take care of all the bills that were going to come from having a child so that's why my dad started doing that organizing and he got fired and we had to sign a non-compete and spent the next year or two. My parents both worked at a grocery store and my mom was able to get health insurance through that grocery store because of honestly just chance. The fact that somebody knew, we knew somebody who worked there, my, a friend of mine, his father was like a manager at a grocery store. Then they hired my mom and gave her health insurance, which was really lucky. And after that, my parents ended up starting their own business, which they've actually been pretty successful at. And that has started me on this completely 
different path. If my parents wouldn't have started that business, I wouldn't have had access to the education that I've had access to or the opportunities that I've had access to. So I know like how different my own life could have been just from the fact that my dad actually stood up and vocalized his opinions and got fired and then ended up starting his own business. And if he wouldn't have done so, I would probably still be in my hometown because um, most of the people I went to high school with have stayed in our hometown. I did get out and that is a form of privilege that has continued to benefit me. Growing up, I always knew that my dad was different from the people around me in Kansas because he would, you know, whisper things like, I voted for Al Gore, not George Bush. And I knew that that was something that was kind of taboo. And I knew that that was different than what was, you know, and that was kind of a hush-hush thing. Growing up, I went to a more progressive church. Like, I, my church had space for queer folks there and allowed for me to question religion at a young age. I identified as agnostic in like middle school and there was space for me to do so. So I feel really lucky to have had that where a lot of people in the Midwest, especially in my hometown of Wichita, where there were a lot of mega churches there, a lot of forced religion in this way that, you know, creates a culture that I find personally toxic. And I have luckily been able to get out of that culture. So I kind of had that background with me when, when I left my hometown when I went to college. My dad, when I was growing up too, would also talk to me about how the U.S. was an empire and how it fought imperialistic wars and that all empires fall one day. And so I kind of had that mentality around how the United States fights these wars that are bad for everybody, for the United States included and for everybody else that we fight these wars with. My dad also identified as like a, a former hippie and anti-Vietnam War. So I had all that background when I went to undergrad, which was I went to the University of Kansas and that's in Lawrence, Kansas. And it was a more progressive part of Kansas. You know, it's one of, there's only, I think two blue counties. Maybe it's changed. Kansas has gotten a little more blue since I've left. At the time it was one of two counties that would consistently vote blue. I had a, overall a good experience there, but it's still pretty white schools. So it was like very white liberal mentality there. One of my majors, in college was Spanish, which was a pretty progressive department, luckily. I had a lot of professors from throughout Latin America, like I had professors from Mexico, professors from Puerto Rico. I I did have professors from Spain, but I would say we, it was more professors from Latin America and learning about all the U.S. proxy wars that occurred in Latin America throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s was really eye-opening for me. It built on what my dad had described to me as like these these wars that the United States is fighting that creates mass inequality in other countries and in the United States as well. And learning about the truth about Christopher Columbus and colonization was super helpful. And I'm really grateful that I had that experience in undergrad, especially since I could have had completely different experiences, even if I just had chosen different majors, because I, I did have a religious studies major as well and a peace and conflict studies minor. And I mean, the religious studies major and peace and conflict studies minor also were really helpful for me, but maybe didn't have that race analysis that was part of the Spanish major, though I don't think that I fully still had come to terms with my own white privilege until I went to law school. And in law school, I think that's when I really began to realize how much privilege I had as a white person. I think before that, I was probably a quote-unquote white feminist, not not intentionally, but you know, that's what I was. And thought racism was bad. I but I didn't think I was racist. You know, I didn't acknowledge my own privilege 
and how I'm a product of a white supremacist society. So one of my first classes I had in law school was with a professor named Professor Lua Yule. She was our law school's first black woman. I actually feel really lucky that I had her as my property law professor because now I actually, most of what I practice is property law. I never thought I would do anything property law related. Most people probably think of like real estate when they think of property law, but she exposed me to so much and really helped me reckon with how unequal the United States still is and how so much of that is based on segregation and redlining and is how those policies still continue today in different ways. I was really lucky that I had friends who forced me to confront my own privilege in law school as well. It was really one of the most toxic places I had ever been in before because I'd never been around so much privilege before that. So when I was in law school, it was such a shock because of the amount of privilege that was there. And I mean, I also know that I have a lot of privilege when I went into law school, but there was also people who were there who were coming from generations of lawyers and had people they could talk to about these complicated concepts that I was like, this is the first time I've ever even thought about these concepts and had never been exposed to them. Seeing that was really eye-opening and I, I think I realized that the law was used to create and to protect people in positions of power and that was a really formative period for me. Even if it was probably one of the most toxic periods of my life, I am glad that I was there because before then I think I had this rosy view of humanity and honestly lawyers are terrible. So going, being around these people who were kind of awful, it was important for me to realize that because I, a lot of the attorneys that I now go up against are people who I would have hated in law school. And so it's it's helpful that I, I had that exposure. I was involved in lots of different organizations. I was involved with reproductive justice organizations. I was involved with the Queer Straight Alliance, which was called Outlaws and Allies, which I think is a great title. I was involved in the Hispanic Law Students Association and other organizations that were more progressive. And I, that's kind of, I think, when I began getting involved with more activism was during law school. I got involved with the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. And through getting involved with Bernie Sanders campaign, I ended up getting involved with the Fight for 15 Minimum Wage in Kansas City. And I did organizing with folks there. We did voter turnout and protests and working with folks who were working at McDonald's in Kansas City was super informative to me. You know, people working multiple low-income jobs, trying to make ends meet, not being able to afford gas to get to work and living off minimum wage and realizing that because there was this narrative that I grew up hearing, which is like, oh, well, if you work at fast food jobs, it's, it's often like teenagers who are doing that work. But being involved in the fight for 15 minimum wage in Kansas City, it's like, no, most of the people I was working with were you know, parents trying to support their kids on much less than $15 in Kansas and Missouri. Doing the work there with these folks really, it was a good juxtaposition with being in law school where I was around so much privilege and people who were coming from this generational wealth. And then leaving that arena and going to work with folks who are making $7.25 an hour, who are working just as hard, if not harder, than people who were in my law school, but yet not able to have the same opportunities. And so I think that was a good balance for me. And my best friend in law school, 
Gracia, she was like, you need to leave Kansas. You got to get out of Kansas. You need to go to San Francisco. She lived in San Francisco for five or 10 years before law school. And she was like, you got to get out of Kansas. She helped me with my cover letter. We, I got an internship at this nonprofit called If When How, which does, they used to be called Law Students Reproductive Justice, and they do reproductive justice work. And I came out to the Bay Area where I was exposed to so much more than I had ever been exposed to in Kansas. And I was in this environment where I was mostly with queer folks or women of color or both. And there was only one man who worked there and he was gay. And it was the, the most supportive environment I'd ever been in before. I felt really uplifted and lucky that I had that summer. And it also forced me to look at my own shit because I, I feel like there's been these instances that I'm describing in my life where it's like I'm forced to confront my own privilege time and time again, forced to confront where, you know, my background compares to other people's. And even if I at times feel like, like I said, in law school, where I'm like, I didn't come from generational wealth, or I didn't come from a family of lawyers. I also did come from different circumstances that allowed me to have access to things that some of my other friends didn't have access to just by being white. And just by having, you know, parents who were in a position after they started their own company to be able to support me in ways that some of my other friends, my, my best friend in law school, she had to work multiple jobs during law school. She still got really good grades, but it was she had to work even harder. And, you know, those were things that nobody acknowledged within our law school and it was always really frustrating because I knew how hard she worked. And yet she had to work twice as hard to get half as much. So when I came out to the Bay Area, Another thing that just kind of shocked me was seeing the amount of money here. I'd never seen so much money and then I'd never seen so much poverty and it was together. I was shocked to see these giant mansions and then people sleeping on the street outside. And that was, I think, one of the biggest things that radicalized me, especially because in San Francisco, you see it breaks down on race and it, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore. I had to think about like what the root causes was and to, and to also think like at some point this has to be intentional on some level or at least people don't care enough to address whatever is going on that creates this because there's no reason that a place that has so much money, I mean, San Francisco has the most billionaires per capita, I think in the world. If there's so many resources here, there's so much money, why are there so many people who are struggling so intensely and the only reason to me is that it's that it has to be at least if not intentional then nobody cares enough to address it and I think I'm the, the cynic in me thinks on some level that it must be intentional I see the policies here that just help the rich get richer and the poor get poorer it seems like that's the point so that after that summer I knew I wanted to come back to San Francisco but I knew I didn't want to be part of the problem I knew I wanted to be part of the solution because I couldn't live with myself moving somewhere and knowing that I was contributing to gentrification which I know by the fact that I did move here I do contribute to gentrification because I can I can afford rent so I do contribute to gentrification just by simply living here but I know that I'm, I want to do everything I can to combat that. And so I moved out here in November of 2016, which was a transformative month for me because I failed the bar exam that month. Also, Donald Trump became our president. That's when I started my job at the Eviction Defense Collaborative. I knew I was at the right place because within that first week after Donald Trump winning the presidential election in 2016, I mean, everybody that I worked with was 
crying. I knew, so I knew I was in the right place because I wanted to be around people who were appalled by that as well. And you know, within the week of Trump winning office, I joined a protest and we marched down to the Castro district, which is our queer district, and felt part of something greater than myself. And I knew I was in the right place. I could feel the energy, and I knew I couldn't be silent. For the next four years, I knew I had to speak up and to voice that what was going on wasn't okay. And under the Trump era, I've, I think I again have only become more radical and more left since then. Doing my job, I see the inequality playing out at court day in and day out, where a tenant who's facing an eviction, how they get treated by the court from filing a fee waiver, asking the court to not have to pay for hundreds of dollars in filing fees and, and you know the court deciding that they're not poor enough or they're too poor to get a fee waiver, which is always fun to see the logic on that because it's always anti-poor people. It, and then seeing judgments entered against people who, for example, one of my colleagues today just got a judgment entered against one of her clients. And this woman is a formerly homeless woman who was living in supportive housing and now she's going to be back on the streets because the court does no empathy. They are evicting people during a global pandemic and there's not much we can do though. We are going to do whatever we can to try to keep people housed. We've been organizing since COVID happened. We've been, we've, we've had protests. We had a protest back in September about a rule that the judicial council repealed that allowed evictions to go forward. And we've seen now what, what that looks like. And it, one thing is that the sheriff hasn't been doing most evictions here in San Francisco of their own accord, but the court is still evicting people. And it's only because the sheriff has decided not to go forward with evictions, uh, most evictions. There are certain kinds of evictions that they are still going forward with. And it's mind boggling to me to see that happening during a global pandemic. The fact that the rates are rising in California and it's one of the worst places of the pandemic and yet evictions are going forward because we prioritize profit and money that landlords receive over human life time and time again. And seeing that is, it's shocking and it's disgusting and it's disappointing. I feel at times it's hard to see because as I talked about before, it's like San Francisco has so much money, has so much wealth, and yet we don't care enough to, I mean, we could, if we wanted to, we could house every person in this city. For every homeless person in San Francisco, there's almost five vacant units. So there's no reason that we can't house the people who are living on the streets. We've been organizing over the last few years to try to get money from the city to actually house people. And we should be getting more money for those services. But of course, that ends up getting held up in ways that are honestly unexplainable at times. I would love to see the people come together to really organize to make sure that we can do what we can to keep folks housed. And I am really lucky that I've been over the last four years of living and working here. I've been able to get involved with organizing movements and been involved in different political campaigns like Jackie Fielder. She just ran against Scott Weiner for state senate and being involved in these different campaigns has been really beneficial to me to make community and that's, that's what I think is the way forward for me because I don't feel that the government is prioritizing us in the way that they should be. What I do see is my friends and my community prioritizing each other. So that's the vision that I see for the future is continuing to build people power because 
I think that's the only way forward. We save us. I don't think that the government saves us. Unfortunately, organizing is really the only way that I've seen mass change happen. And I'm proud to be part of that in San Francisco and hoping to continue that. I also, within my job, I helped unionize my workplace. And I'm not that, I think that working for somewhere like a nonprofit is the same as working in a place like Amazon. But I do think that it's important for workers to have a seat at the bargaining table for any job that they're working at. And being part of that unionizing process has been really awesome to create solidarity amongst the my coworkers and feel that we have a voice at the table when we're talking about different policies. But I will say that that's something I encourage other people to do is to form unions at your workplaces because it's a way that you can have a, a seat at the table. And I'm really glad that I had a lot of support with my other co-workers at the time and we were able to build together that solidarity amongst each other to really fight for internal change because there's truth about the nonprofit industrial complex you know there's there's its own system that it has problems and it's you know hierarchical in certain ways so building that solidarity amongst the workers is is something I think is important to do and I hope to see the labor movement come together with the tenants rights movement and other movements as well like I would love to see all of these movements come together with Black Lives Matter and, and create intersectionality with all of our movements that way we can really build a different future that is intersectional that does recognize that we have to prioritize people who are the most marginalized if we want to really create any change and if we prioritize the folks who are the most marginalized, they're going to do what they can to fight for us because they know what's at stake. And I've been really lucky to be involved with different movements and to see that, like, to see how important it is to have intersectionality as the primary focus in any movement to really build it so we can have something that is strong enough to go up against the people who want to tear us down. I think there's a future worth fighting for and I'm excited to fight with my community and my friends towards that future and to build something that maybe maybe has never existed before, but I think that we can make it happen because I see it with the people in my community. And I see that we have each other's backs in this way that is super inspiring.